Hello and welcome to Language You, a podcast about language, literacy, multilingualism, and other languagey things in higher education. I'm Joel Hanghartsy, your host, coming to you from the Center for English Language Learning, Teaching, and Research, that's CELTER, at Simon Fraser University in beautiful Burnaby, British Columbia. My guest today is Julia Williams, the Director of English Language Studies and Coordinator of Applied Language Studies at the University of Waterloo in Ontario. We're going to be talking today about a phenomenon broadly known as credit ESL or credit EAP. The question under consideration by some is, should multilingual students or perhaps international students or others for whom English is an additional language receive the same type of academic credit for their studies in English as any other student might in, say, Italian or Spanish or Chinese or French? Some would argue that this is a no-brainer. A student is studying a language that is not their own. They're putting in a lot of hard work they should get credit. Others might suggest that because the student is already studying at an English medium university, it's not the university's responsibility to educate them in that language. So this is a topic of some controversy among university administrators, teachers, and others. Julia has a lot to say about this. She's been the director of English language studies at Renison University College in the University of Waterloo for some time. She has overseen the development of a very robust for credit EIP or ESL program at Waterloo, and so she has a lot to say on this subject. So whether you're somebody who's interested in exploring this idea further and perhaps introducing such a program at your own institution, or you'd just like to learn a little bit more about the controversy and why it can sometimes be difficult to implement these types of programs, you're going to want to stick around to hear what Julia has to say about this. In addition to being the Director of English Language Studies, Julia also teaches a number of courses in applied linguistics. She has taught French as a second language, she's taught English in a number of contexts, and she's written several textbooks for Pearson. So she's somebody who has a lot to say about this subject, and I look forward to sharing our conversation with you. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Julia, so much for your time. Were you part of implementing this at, at your institution? Uh, I would say I was part of growing it. Okay. So I arrived at the University of Waterloo. So I, I'm, you know, early on in my career, I started teaching at the at Carleton University, and I taught there for about ten years before I went to before I came to the University of Waterloo. Okay. And at Carleton, they actually did have credit EAP, and they had a model. It was a pretty interesting model where students took a reduced content course load uh-huh. alongside an ESL course and the ESL course had so um, you know if, on entry the ESL course I think was nine hours a week okay and then they could take one other credit course and then as they progressed from there the following term they would take two content courses and the ESL course was six hours a week and then uh, as they moved into their third term if they were successful in their second term they moved into the third term they take three credit courses and they take an ESL course that would last three hours. Okay, so sort of a, like a gradual sheltered kind of thing. Yeah, and it was quite a nice model actually. Uh, when I moved to Waterloo, there was a single course that had been approved about 30 years ago. Oh, wow. And so uh, the woman who had done that initial work, her name was Judy Jewinski, and she was a UW student, did her master's at Waterloo, and then uh, got into doing her research in second language acquisition field, began teaching English second language learners. And she uh, started, so at the, that time they developed a, a course 
that was for English language learners only, but the course was absolutely parallel to their undergraduate composition skills course within their English literature department. Right. So like composition for second language writers kind of thing. Yeah. And so uh, those two courses proceeded apace for the next 30 years. And at about the time that I arrived, they were looking at requiring more, more diversity of courses there. So they wanted to have a speaking skills course, for example, and they wanted to have a course at the graduate level. So when I arrived, then we were able to start expanding our course offerings. And uh, so now we have quite a nice suite of course offerings, both at the undergraduate and at the graduate level. Mm-hmm. So that works, that works well. But it's a different model than the Carleton model. So what's what's different about it? Uh, it is uh, our ESL course. So actually, um, we I'm just going to refer to them by our new course code. We used to call them ESL courses, but uh, they're now we call them English for Multilingual Speakers. I noticed that. I saw. I think that's great. Actually, that looks really nice. Yeah, we uh, we felt that the ESL term was getting a little uh, pejorative and then of course also not not correct because it's not always our students second language so we wanted to move to something that would uh, put a positive give a lend a positive attribute to our students so being multilingual was a was a good one so yeah so our emls courses then once you do it a few times it just rolls off your tongue yeah (laughs) (laughs) but um so uh those courses then are single courses that are that students take alongside their other content courses uh usually students count them as an elective credit towards their degree okay yeah um it's a little bit more complicated than that in that our courses often fulfill requirements communication skills requirements and uh so sometimes they come to us because they they need to take a a mandatory communication skills course uh, and our courses are one amongst several course options for them to take. Uh, students are never forced into our courses. Uh, just because they happen to be English language learners doesn't mean they have to take one of our courses. But our courses are amongst their course offerings that are open to them. That's something I was wondering about is how much uptake do you see and how do you draw them in? Well, we have a range of course promotional materials um, trying to build awareness across uh, within our unit but also across um, the campus and across different faculties so uh, we do that kind of normal stuff we profile students and that kind of thing our courses are though embedded in communication skills initiatives now it's pretty interesting at the university level what I'm seeing is a greater interest campus-wide in developing the communication skills courses of students. Yeah. The idea there is that communication skills are important for all students, right. even English language learners. Even if you're a very skilled English language user, you can still improve. So what we're finding here at the University of Waterloo anyways, uh, and I'm, I'm guessing it's maybe a little more general too across other universities, is increasing interest in developing, explicitly developing English communication skills for all students. And then if you say that even English speakers, for example, can improve their communication skills, then it's a natural uh, extension to say, well, of course, English language learners can also improve their English language skills. Well, we we all can, right? And uh, yeah, it's an interesting uh, encouragement. It's an interesting way to um, think about English language skills and be inclusive of our English language learners too. Yeah, that's something I've been wondering about too, as I look at the way different universities treat 
their multilingual students or the, the, the ways that they talk about skills that they want students to develop. Because some places I see an emphasis on writing. So for example, you mentioned at Carleton, it was sort of a, a parallel composition course, and that was seen as the foundational skill was that writing. Um, some places you do see an emphasis on, we have a lot of international students and we need a kind of ESL, EAP thing. But do you think communication is becoming the kind of standard term of reference here? Because I, I, I see it pop up a lot too. I've seen, I think it was UVic uh, has changed I forget if it was their writing center or something, but they, they changed it to the Center for Academic Communication. Um, and is this a, do you think this is a trend just in Canada or are we seeing it across North America or what, what's your sense of, of that? And then what implications do you think that has for those of us who are second language educators at the university level? Well, let's see if I can address that question. Um, just to step back a little bit, um, the course at Carleton was actually an integrated skills course. Oh, were integrated skills, so you were doing writing and speaking. Actually. Right, right. It was, it was good, just to clarify that. Um, you know, interestingly enough, uh, I used to teach at Humber College and at Algonquin College, and those colleges always had, you know, students were required to take communication skills courses. And so I think at the college level, there's always been an interest in communication skills. Uh, at the university level, I think there was a kind of an assumption that native English speakers had sufficient communication skills in order to succeed in their other courses. Mm -hmm. um, and there weren't sufficient numbers of international students for anybody to really care about Sure, <laughs> the communication skills of international students. Uh, but of course, know that that's changing now. Mm -hmm. um, and yes, our writing center has also changed its name to the Writing and Communication Skills Center. So uh, I think that's an interesting thing. The writing tutors over there are uh, getting training and um, and maybe people already have certification in order to teach oral skills or they have a comfort with teaching oral skills. Mm -hmm. So that's an interesting thing. Um, at Waterloo, the co-op system drives a lot of the curricular and support services for students. So uh, many students at Waterloo take co-op programs. Engineering is completely co-op. If you're in engineering, you're on a co-op stream. Okay. Uh, and many students in math and science are also on co-op uh, and in the arts field too. So if you're sending students out to employers and uh, those students will need to write emails and write reports and give presentations, then there's a real concern that those students transition well into employment. Yeah. And so that's a that's a big concern. So one of the recommendations I always make when um, when talking to people about building a credit ESL program or EAP program is to try and find the unique circumstances at your university that you can leverage. Yeah. To build an ESL credit. So for us, certainly being in a context where uh, there's such a drive to get students out into employment, even within four months of their starting university. Mm. Um, that's that's a pretty big push. And, um, you know, uh, so I'm going to tell you a little story that I think it's okay to tell you. Um, okay. The uh, Faculty of Math has very many co-op employers within its um I, I don't know, want to say stable of, of co-op employers. Sure. And uh, at a certain point, this was several years ago, those employers began to push back uh, on uh, the faculty of math. And what they said was, you know, your students are technically superb in their math skills, but their communication skills aren't good. 
And if you don't address this issue, then we will stop hiring them. Wow. That was, yeah. So the employer pushback was a huge motivator to force attention to students' communication skills. And at that time, the math faculty came to us as well as, a, when I say us, I mean a group of people who are responsible for delivering communication skills courses across the university. So we actually have a, an English language and literature department. So we had the, the chair of English involved. I'm the director of English language studies. So we offer all the EMLS courses on campus. So I was involved. And we also had, we have and have a department of speech uh, communication. Okay. The chair of speech communication there as well. So, uh, you know, the Dean of Math got together with us, the Associate Dean of Math got together with us and said, you guys offer these communication skills courses. Uh, let's set up a system so that all of our students have to take two courses, two communication skills courses within their first two years of study. How are we going to make this work? And so we actually uh, developed a, um, a way of uh, well, we developed, first of all, a suite of courses, so some from English, some from SpeechCom, some from uh, English language studies, and uh, we set up a directed self-placement portal, which is uh, interesting. It's um, a little more common down in the United States. To It's often used to distribute students across communication skills courses, often writing first yeah, yeah. in the U.S., so we did a similar type of thing. It's essentially it's a website where you list the advantages of each of the courses. Uh, you make explicit the um, your course outcomes, and then you ask students to read that information. You also ask students to answer a few reflective questions, things like, um, you know, do you prefer speaking or writing? Do you prefer to work on something that's your strength or would you like to work on something that you perceive as your weakness? Um, are you, do you find that reading and listening take you extra time for processing? These kinds of things. Um, and then students were also asked to write a very short piece of text because some of the research on directed self-placement shows that if students are asked to actually generate a text, then they become more reflective about their text producing abilities. Mm. So yeah, so they so they uh, write a little text about this, they answer some questions, they review the information about the courses, and then they select the course that they want to take. So uh, many of them do select EMLS courses. We have uh, math recruits uh, heavily from China. So there's a lot of um, typically Mandarin speaking students who come and they, they often opt for uh, an EMLS course rather than an English or a speech comm course. Mm -hmm. Okay. We, that's how we do that. That's great. And was that specifically an arrangement with math or does that extend to other, like are there other communications requirements from other areas? Do you kind of work with different units as on an ad hoc basis or is it a kind of a university wide requirement? Well, that's a really good question. We started at, with math because math was the first faculty to yeah. really push in this direction. But uh, interestingly enough, the some part of the outcome of that whole process with the math was the creation of a higher level committee that looked at the logistics and the finances of rolling out communication skills requirements across all the faculties. Ah. And that's actually what happened. So um, not all the faculties are doing the same thing. They're not all using the, what we call quote, math approach, unquote. Uh -huh. um, uh, it's a fairly organic process uh, 
different departments or different faculties are um, deciding that they would like to implement a communication skills course themselves. And so they do a, you know, a writing, well, a content-based content and language integrated learning uh, course. Um, And they have been asking for help from the communication skills units in developing some of those courses, but they're going to run them themselves. Um, Other faculties have gone with a math approach. So there's there's maybe one or two more models in there that, that work. But interestingly, yeah, there's a real push to have communication skills as a focus in the early years of undergraduate education here at the university. That's really interesting. I think, yeah, I've noticed that too in the work that we do here is it does depend on who you're working with. Some people would like to farm it out, as it were, to another unit. Some would like to have control of that type of course. Um, so I think it's good to be able to be flexible if you're if you're in the position of of helping with that type of thing because ultimately we just want to like I guess we want to see the students succeed as much as these other units do. The way we sell our courses. So um, how this all started was the math department came to us with a series of outcomes, and we took our courses, all the courses in that communication skills initiative, and we mapped them all onto the outcomes. And what we realized that all of our courses met different outcomes. So all of our courses, they weren't all doing the same thing. Sure. Uh, and one of the ways that we, you know, the the focus then became, well, how are our courses different? And English literature was very, the English literature department was very interested in seeing how their undergraduate writing course was different from our undergraduate writing course. Yeah. <laughs> and they're saying, well, how can you, if you say that you give explicit attention to language, how can you then accomplish all the other outcomes as well? Like you're saying that you meet these communication skill outcomes, but how do you how do you do that and provide feedback on language as well? And one of our answers to that is that actually our courses are a little bit longer. So we have um, most English literature courses or the that undergraduate composition skills course is a three-hour course per week. Ours are four hours. Oh, okay. So, uh, and actually that is quite consistent with the number of hours per week of any other language department on campus. So French and German and Spanish and Korean and Chinese and Japanese, all of those courses are offered typically at four hours a week. So in that way, we we align our English language courses with the courses in other language departments on campus. And yet we are still able to match some of the communication skills re- outcomes that are expected in the other courses. That's, that's a, I think that connects to a larger kind of point about credit English or credit ESL or whatever you want to call it, is that that's kind of the traditional argument for it, right? Is that this is a learning a language just like learning French or learning Japanese or this sort of thing. And as you know, sort of in the past, universities weren't really set up this way. It was like you would either do your English language education somewhere else on a unit that's not really attached to an academic part of the university, or you could do it, but you wouldn't receive credit for it. So why do you think, um, or do you think that it's that you, more universities should embrace the credit model, should move away from that separate, uh, you know, cont- English is, is relegated to non-credit continuing studies or externally? Do, do you think this is a model that more universities p- should pursue and, and why or why not? Well, I think it's great to have choice. Yeah. So I, I would advocate for one in lieu of the other. Uh, I think it's nice for students to have choice and options for pathways into the university. I noticed that a lot of, I think just about every university and college now in Canada have an intensive ESL program. Sure. Or pre-sessional or non-credit, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And 
a lot of them now have pathway programs in to the university. So, you know, like U of T New College has an international foundation program. And I think right at SFU, you guys have a, um, you work with the Fraser International College, right? Yeah, yeah. So I think, and actually at Waterloo, we have a pathway program in too. It's called uh, BASE, Bridge to Academic Success. Yeah, so they're out there everywhere, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so then when you, you know, move through those stages, um, then, uh, but but I think most people would agree that just because students pass through intensive English or pass through these pathway programs, that when they arrive, you know, in the heart of the, you know, their degree program, uh, they still need help with English. Right. Right. They say, I mean, we, we're all English language learners all our lives. So uh, just because they meet the English language requirement of the university, either one way or another, or they take a base program or a you know, pathway program into the university doesn't mean that they don't still need help with their English. So um, at that point, it's nice to be able to offer them uh, a credit option. Exactly. What, what do you think the barriers to this sort of, yeah, what are the barriers towards offering credit for this type of, of course, in your opinion? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Um, and I think it depends where you are. So generally, I would say attitude of people, administrators, um, who believe that English language instruction should be front-loaded. Mm. Um, and so I think this emphasis on communication skills development within the course of a degree program, I think, is modifying that attitude. Mm-hmm. Maybe a little bit of an idea that uh, English language isn't really a language like any other and that, um, you know, somehow teaching French or Spanish or German or Chinese or Korean or Japanese, that these are languages that we teach here at Waterloo, that... Um, that they're somehow different than teaching English and that teaching English is less academic. Uh, so one of the things I think is just, we're in this period of transition where often people who are teaching or who may teach credit ESL or EAP uh, come out of a program or have transitioned from a program that was initially an intensive program uh, and so is not looked on as, it uh, does not have faculty members, research faculty members. Um, so people may not have PhDs. They may not have, you know, the research faculty positions. So uh, these people are continuing lecturers often or sessional instructors. And so they don't have the same academic status in the university as people in other language departments do. So if I go to, for example, our Germanic and Slavic studies department, Everybody there is a research faculty member, but within my English language studies unit, we are all mostly continuing lecturers and we don't have faculty research appointments. So then there's a, kind of a, an attitude then that forms, um, and I think mostly in the humanities side of things, <laughs> that English teaching is non-academic. Right. And uh, that it's something that people with low lower credentials do um, and it's not academic. And so, uh, yeah, now when we're working with engineers or uh, scientists out of science, science faculty or mathematicians, for example, I don't really encounter that. Uh, those, uh, you know, STEM folks are really very pragmatic. They say, look, we've brought all these students over international students. They need help with learning English in order to succeed. How can you help us? Please help us. Uh, we really want to work with you to improve the outcomes of our students. 
and they're yeah so they're very pragmatic um the um humanities side i think people say well um we can work with students who have diverse linguistic backgrounds uh if there's a threshold that students need to pass to get into the university, like your IELTS or your TOEFL score, um, if they meet that threshold, then they shouldn't need any more English language instruction. So it's a it's a really unusual thing, actually. Um, people, and, and with the advent of um, translingualism, I think that's often interpreted as um, maybe not value English language instruction as much. Uh, you know, for example, we, we work within a faculty in department and those folks say um, we're happy to have English language learners in our class um, send them along to us uh, you know if if an English language learner is having a tough time they don't recommend our classes to the students mm -hmm. they just say oh, well, well we'll continue to work with you right so one of the ways that we seem to manage that a little bit is in our initial stages of building our credit or growing our credit ESL program is we worked really hard on establishing relationships with faculty members in the other language departments. Right. We worked really closely with people in French and Slavic studies and um, in our East Asian studies uh, language teachers, instructors. We held a colloquium where we, um, you know, featured our English language instructors and we had keynote speakers and we asked people to make various presentations. And so we tried to establish English language studies as a, a purveyor of, you know, or as a site of um, research production right. and research consumption. And uh, so we, we built uh, relationships with those people. Um, we've started a program uh, with Germanic and Slavic studies where we teach what we call applied language studies, which is really applied linguistics courses. So we work with that unit, that department to deliver those courses to students at the university. So uh, we're kind of embedded in, in that initiative and in that uh, minor in applied language studies. Uh, and, you know, slowly, slowly over the years, you get to know the different language faculty and what they're doing and what their research interests are. And you, you know, some of us go to TESOL together and we go to, um, not a lot of them go to TESOL, TESOL events in Canada or in Ontario or elsewhere in Canada, but a lot of them go to the TESOL convention. Sure. And uh, so, and you, and you have to go and present there, right? You, you have to make an effort to be, to demonstrate your leadership in your particular field. Uh, and then other people see that and, um, and then they begin to accept you as an academic, um, that what you're doing is an academic endeavor, even though you may not have research faculty status. That's, yeah, that's a really good point. You really have to embrace your role within the university. Mm -hmm. Other administrative things that are helpful to know about within the university as you're building towards a credit EAP program, it's helpful to know the course approvals process, for example. How do you actually get a credit course into the course calendar? So, right. uh, you know, there's a usually a series of committees and the your course proposal will move through a sequence of committees until it reaches usually Senate approval and then it gets added into the course calendar. So it's helpful to know, you know, what are those committees? When do they meet? Who are on them? What are their agendas like? Um, can you go to them? Uh, can you go to support the your course proposal in case anybody has questions? These kinds of that you need to know these sort of administrative procedures. And the other, of course, super important thing is to find out 
how your figure out how your courses will be financed. So uh, there's a variety of financial models out there, um, and you really have to think about where that money is going to come from. Uh, in our case, our provost actually pays for all the English language studies courses. So that is, and the money comes from wow. that office because it is, uh, our courses are not associated with any faculty. Oh, I see. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So we're outside the faculty. So it comes from, you know, the, the, the highest level that's non-faculty specific. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I guess actually there's another challenge for Credit EAP is that often you don't fit into any particular model. Yeah. Uh, and so it takes a while to move people into, you know, seeing what you can offer, what you can do for the students, um, why you should be at the university, um, you know, how you can help them in terms of their international recruitment, uh, these, these kinds of things. So just before we go, sure. um, we, we should really, I, I'd like to say a word about York University. Oh, please, yeah. They actually have Credit ESL, and I really like their model. I would, I, uh, my colleague Saskia still has told me about it a little bit, but um, I haven't spoken to her lately, so I'd love to hear a little bit about how their model works, yeah. Well, I, um, Saskia would probably be able to give you the uh, lowdown, but my understanding is that essentially the um, faculty members who have positions there in applied linguistics, they actually also teach right. English ESL credit EAP courses. Right. So I love that model because then you've got uh, faculty researchers, right? These are research faculty positions and they've got one foot on applied linguistics side and they've got one foot grounded in English language teaching. And, uh, and, and then you've got people teaching the English language courses that are, that have those positions, right? So it's certainly aligned with the English language teaching is certainly aligned with uh, faculty research positions, which is, um, and of course they're doing research. Of course they are, um, you know, uh, Linda Steinman and Antonella Vallejo and those folks, right? Mm -hmm. They're they're really doing good stuff, right? And and I think that's a very an advanced way of looking at it. They they may be a little bit further ahead actually than than uh, the rest of us. Language U is sponsored by SFU's Center for English Language Learning, Teaching, and Research. Visit our website, sfuselter.ca. I'm Joel Hang Hartsey, your host. This podcast is produced by Quincy Wong and Selter. Our music is by Andrew Best. For more music and cool synthesizers, visit blamsoft.com. Thanks for listening. We can't spell language without you. That's why I want to hear from you. If there's a guest that you'd like to hear, if you'd like to be a guest, if there's some topic you think we should be addressing on Language U, send me an email. It's jhanghar at sfu.ca. That's J-H-E-N-G-H-A-R at sfu.ca.